The following program is being brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi. Today on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, I'll talk with some of the whale guardians of Stellwagen Bank. This episode today is titled, Right Whales, Wrong Shipping Lane. Stellwagen Bank is an underwater national marine sanctuary off of Massachusetts. It's like a threshold between Massachusetts Bay and the Gulf of Maine. And with me are uh, members of the Stellwagen Bank National Marine Sanctuary, Superintendent Craig McDonald and Assistant Superintendent Ben Cowley Haskell and GIS Analyst Mike Thompson. Hello, Craig. Uh, Rob, how are you? Good. Ben, hello. Hey, Rob. And Mike. Hello. Hey, you're all there. Let's start with Superintendent McDonald. Uh, what is Stellwagen Bank, and why is it so important that Washington made it into a national marine sanctuary? Yeah, Rob, uh, you, know, you ask a lot of people around here, go whale watching, you go tuna fishing, you know, they, they know about it. Uh, it's just a, an area that concentrates uh, an enormous a lot of wildlife uh, you know, relative to, to, to other areas. Congress established it as a sanctuary in 1992. Um, it's, in terms of area, it's about the size of the state of Rhode Island, 842 square miles, and, and as you indicated, it stretches between uh, you know, Gloucester, Cape Ann, and Provincetown you know, down, on the, uh, down on the Cape. Uh, it's a remarkable area. It's got you know, high biodiversity, um, has a lot of uses, has a lot of shipwrecks, and we look at management of this site as though it were a three-legged stool uh, where we're looking to manage conservation of biodiversity. We're looking to help uh, protect uh, whales, uh, and we're also tasked with managing uh, maritime heritage resources, which are, are shipwrecks. And while doing this, we're also charged with facilitating uses that are compatible with the primary goal of protecting the place. Thank you. Uh, we're going to talk mostly about whales and marine life, uh, where can people go to learn more about, say, the shipwrecks or the other aspects of the sanctuary that you Yeah, the best place is to go to our, our, our website, uh, which is stellwagon.noaa.gov. And that's stellwagon spelled with an E, uh, not an O. Uh, so that's stellwagon.noaa.gov. Thank you. Yes, I recommend it highly that you've got some video clips there and people can feel like they're diving over wrecks or, um, or in with the marine life. I'd like to turn to Assistant Superintendent Ben Cowie-Haskell and ask about uh, how the National Marine Sanctuary folks have been working with whale watchers and what you've discovered in regards to right whales. 
Okay, Rob. Actually, uh, I think Mike Thompson, our GIS um, analyst and uh, uh, whale researcher, would be better uh, suited to answer that question. So, Mike? Thank you. Hi, Rob. So Thank back you, in 1979, we started working with um, two groups that have uh, naturalists that they put onto whale-watching boats um, from the Whale Center in New England, up in Gloucester, and then the Provincetown Center for Coastal Studies down on the Cape. Um, over the years, they go out during the summer months with their whale-watching boats and collect data, everything from how many whales they're seeing and species and what type of behavior they're doing. Um, this large database uh, turned to be uh, very useful for us here is collecting uh, historic trends of where whales are across the sanctuary. Um, over the now almost 30 years of data that we've collected to date, it has been uh, a very large, over 400,000 sightings between the two sites that have allowed us to better identify uh, humpback, right, minke, and fin whales in the sanctuary. Mike, can you repeat that number of sightings you said? Sure. We're around anywhere between 400 to 500,000 sightings uh, once we get this year's sightings in. Close to half a million sightings. That's correct. And over how many years? Um, well, 30 if you include this year. Yeah, um, yeah. And back, uh, we did a project a few years ago, which um, takes our shipping lane and worked with the IMO to shift it further north uh, to get it out of area of high density of whales. Um, and that was using a 27-year analysis, uh, detailed analysis of the um, of the whales in the sanctuary. And what did the analysis show you about the way they frequent the area? Sure, as as can be expected, there are some hot spots out in the sanctuary for um, you know most likely because of an ecological reasons uh, due to sediment and what type of foraging behaviors they're using in depth. Um, that there are some hot spots that the whales uh, frequent, and in fact, the areas that they frequent are were also areas that. Uh, the shipping lane ran directly through. Uh-oh. Yeah, a real big problem. Um, but this way we were able to do a couple different things. Um, first, we were able to take all the data in, and there's um, lots of dealings with large data like this, especially over multiple years with different methods of uh, collecting data and the increased technologies over the year of GPS and old-fashioned Lorands and Lorands still being used and conversions, and, and it's a... It's a great analysis to be able to go through and just deal with, you know, there's an, there's an effort side of things where the whale-watching boats are going to where the whales are, and there's overlap issues between the two groups, so we need to do um, ways to um, limit down duplicate sightings. So we actually took a conservative effort to go look at where the whales were, and it still turns out that they turn up in, in three spots, uh, predominantly um, the northwest corner, the southwest corner, and the southeast of the sanctuary. Um, and a little bit up on Jeffrey's Ledge where the sanctuary overlaps. Um, down in the south is exactly where the shipping lane runs through or, or at this point used to run through. Um, so when we really have to imagine over all of the years. Or to visualize, but you're saying that there was like a, a group on the south end of the bank and a group on the north end of the bank, and there was kind of less in, in between or something? Is it? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, as a GIS mapping guy on this end, it's it's a really strong tool and a strong example of how GIS can be used to better manage and spatially plan out the sanctuary, um, where you can show to everybody and undisputable that there's, uh, you know, a big red blob of a hot spot of whales up in the north and a big red blob down towards the south. And if you simply shifted that shipping lane uh, 12 degrees, you'd um, miss those peaks of whale densities. Excellent. Um, in fact, when we ran all of the numbers, it came out to a, a 81% um, risk reduction or potential interaction reduction 
for all baleen whales and a 58% reduction for right whales. That's very impressive. And to think that those of us who've gone on whale watches all these years, that, that those voyages are actually contributing to this knowledge is, is stunning. Rob, uh, this is Ben. Um, <clears throat> our, um, our science coordinator, Dave Wiley, asked the question, so why are there fewer whales in this gap between the high-density area in the north and the one in the south? And um, so he looked for a reason, and it turns out there's an ecological reason for that um, <clears throat> uh, fewer number of whales in between, and that's because um, the habitat that is suitable for sandlands, which the humpback and other baleen whales um, prefer to feed on, is... Um, is sort of thinner and, and less ideal in that area between these um, between these hot spots for whales. Um, hmm. So the sandlands prefer um, pretty much a, a, a sandy, gravelly sort of uh, habitat on the bottom in which they can dive. And these sandlands are pencil-like, um, skinny fish that are about uh, four or five inches long, and they literally dive into the sand. Uh, generally at night, to escape predators, in other words, whales. And um, so they have to have the right type of, of habitat um, that is suitable for <clears throat> escaping into, so to speak. Um, and um, it turns out that the uh, northwest and southwest corners of the sanctuary are ideal habitat for sandlands uh, to, to, um, to hide in and that this area in between uh, has less of this um, ideal habitat, and therefore we find fewer whales in that, in that gap. And that's, that's where uh, we decide to shift the shipping lane into. Well, I want to thank Dave Wiley for asking those good questions. Uh, Dave and I went to grad school together, and I'm sorry that he couldn't um, be on the program because his science has been just phenomenal that he's been doing. Uh, and we hope him that we wish him all the best with his battling cancer and stuff. Yeah, thanks, Rob. I'm, I'm surely appreciate that sentiment. Uh, you know, just one other thing, if I can add quickly, this is Craig again. Is that in addition to the data, there's the cooperation with a lot of partners to make this happen. And your listeners might appreciate that it took us it's 27 years of data and the analysis that Mike conducted, uh, and then there were five years of discussions and negotiations um, with a number of partners. Um, which includes you know, the, the uh, NOAA, the Protected Resources folks at the National Marine Fisheries Service, the, the Fishery Science Center here with National Marine Fisheries in the Northeast, the, the NOAA General Counsel, these are the attorneys uh, for the international uh, uh, sector, uh, work with the Massachusetts Port Authority, work with the shipping industry. Um, the Coast Guard was very helpful in facilitating the, the outcome. And then, of course, the decision to move the shipping lane was actually an international decision that was made, you know, by the International Maritime Organization. So this was, uh, was as Mike indicated, it was a very large conservation benefit uh, that's been realized, uh, but it's, uh, it's a very long, uh, arduous process to get to that point. I can, I can only begin to imagine. Um, so, and that, that includes how you work with shipping, or those are just the, all the agencies that have to work with you with shipping? Well, also, the, the shipping industry, they were very, very active. Uh, they worked through the Massachusetts Port Authority uh, a process. Uh, Dave Wiley, uh, others of us would go um, give presentations, run different scenarios. Mike would run a number of different alternatives. 
um, and we wanted the industry uh, acceptance uh, because we thought this was this is something that they had to take some ownership in as well. And and they they, they came up to the plate. And they did a great job. Yes. And so when did the uh, uh, how did, the changes went into effect? And then there have been subsequent uh, things you've been doing with the shipping industry. Yeah. The, well, in July of uh, July twenty seventh, the shipping line change occurred, and um, you know again Mike has been working with. Uh, uh, auto, uh, auto, automatic identification system uh, data that the Coast Guard uh, uh, ma- makes available, and we were able to determine that there was uh, almost total compliance within what a 24-hour period of the announcement, of, you know, of the of the of the uh, official lane change. So the industry was was right on the money. And the next day, almost all of them are now moving, uh, you know, within the new uh, shipping lane uh, uh, corridors. That's a, a remarkable. Talk about turning aircraft carriers, the whole, the whole shipping just shift course. And, and what's also perhaps remarkable is the fact that we can actually determine that as, as, as fact. We can actually monitor compliance uh, on, 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 you know, by the industry uh, in, with this, uh, this new tool we have uh, called AIS. Uh, but, you know, you, you also brought up another uh, action. There were two uh, liquid natural gas port, deep water ports, uh, you know, proposed for licensing along the western boundary of the sanctuary just a few years ago. Uh, we were able to invoke uh, the National Marine Sanctuary Act uh, to uh, conduct a formal consultation with the licensing agencies, which was the Coast Guard and, and the uh, Maritime Administration. Uh, we made a few recommendations. Uh, the recommendations were accepted as part of the license requirements, and so now within the new aligned uh, shipping lane, we have 10 real-time right whale detection buoys uh, that the industry, uh, the, the LNG companies, paid for uh, working with Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute and, and Cornell. Uh, this provides the operators of the vessels information on a website they access that tells them you know, when a right whale call was detected within the shipping lane. Um, and the license agreement re- requires them that when they're five nautical miles away from the point of detection, they have to slow down to ten knots. That's amazing. We're going to take a break, and we'll be back with the guardians of Stel- well, guardians of Stellwagen Bank, right whales, wrong shipping lanes. listening to the Green Talk Network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures today and tomorrow. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. All together Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and 
ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. So many key world issues today relate to energy and environment. We are living in a time where world events set us up for a major transformation of our society. Enter Dr. Bernie Balkan. Dr. Balkan is Commissioner for Energy and Transport for the Sustainable Development Commission in the UK. Whether it's the financial crisis, China's transformation, the emergence of India, or Obama's ascension, put yourself on the pulse of today's changes. Listen for Environment on the Edge with Dr. Bernie Balkan, Tuesdays at 10 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Green Talk Network. Keep listening to the Green Talk Network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures, today and tomorrow. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. We're back with the Whale Guardians of Stellwagen Bank, and we're talking about uh, set, they've been setting up real-time detection of right whales through buoys. And uh, with me today are Superintendent Craig McDonald and Assistant Superintendent Ben Cowie Haskell and GIS analyst Mike Thompson. Mike, um, are there ways that we can listen into um, this real-time detection system that Stellwagen Bank National Marine Sanctuary is setting up? Absolutely. We've worked with a lot of partners to generate a website now hosted by Cornell's University's bioacoustic research programs. Um, you can look at it at listenforwhales.org. That's simple. Just listenforwhales.org. That's correct, and it will show you um, live, real-time upcalls in acoustic detections of right whales in the sanctuary. And if people have questions, can they write to you, or should they write what's what, what they do? They can send us. Uh, they can look us up on the website at stellwagon.noaa.gov, and there's a uh, general contact information for us there. Excellent, uh, Craig. Uh, I think I, inter- I interrupted you when you were uh, telling us about the LNG uh, assistance of the detection system and so forth. 
Yeah, Rob, there's a, there's two aspects to that. There's this one is the you know the policy and and the interaction with the you know with the private sector, which I I, I think turned out you know very well, a win-win for for, for both parties. Uh, and then there's also the remarkable technology that's been brought to, to, to play here. Um, just think of you know that the shipping lane uh, as you know as a corridor. Uh, it's like a road with a left side and a right side, uh, or port side and starboard side. Uh, Going through the sanctuary and right along the middle and the median strip, you know, are located, um, you know, at uh, distances equidistant apart, uh, you know, a series of ten moored buoys. So they're moored on the sea floor, and then coming up off the, the sea floor along the mooring line is a hydrophone that receives uh, the, the call. Uh, it goes up uh, a you know a cable to the um, to the, the buoy at, at, at the surface and. Um, it transmits the the, the call uh, to uh, to Cornell, where uh, it then that information is put onto the, the website. Um, now, Mike couldn't give you more you know, specifics on that. Um, Mike, do you have anything to, to add? Or sure, I think you know technologies like this at sea are always a little bit more difficult than they sound. Um, it's very difficult to get a, a, a mooring. Out there, uh, more to the bottom of the buoy component, and not create much noise. Um, so one of the bigger issues we have is first making it a quiet hydrophone underwater, and then also having a computer system which is running on each one of these buoys at the surface, which has to be powered and maintained through sometimes difficult winter lives here in uh, New England. Yes, and these computer systems, um, act, the buoys actually have computers on them that uh, have an algorithm that run through and detect whether or not this is a right whale up call or not and it has a special confidence interval. And if that confidence interval is met, it is uh, transmitted via satellite to Cornell University. They have uh, trained staff and analysts there who review and certify whether or not it is uh, truly an upcall and that a right whale is present. And if it is, they uh, transmit that message out uh, to their website and also um, via a different way using um, an AIS technology to directly get uh, um, ships with the appropriate software on board. That's an incredible amount of data. I take my hat off to however that could sort it out and stuff. And then what does the, the you said it was sent, something was sent to the ships? Uh, yes, the uh, sanctuary has been working um, in partnership with the U.S. Coast Guard uh, and developed a technology utilizing the automatic identification system, so it's called AIS. It's very similar to the way uh, the FAA works for aircraft. Oh, wow. We're doing it for vessel um, uh, traffic. So do they call the right whales by name and say that they're moving in and moving out? Um, not yet. We're working on that. Yeah, we'd, have to, we'd have to detect their accent. We haven't been able to do that yet. Oh, that's right. That it doesn't correspond with their tail pattern or something. Uh, yeah. No, Rob, one, one thing that's also, I think, worth mentioning on this, this is a, a system that's put in place. Uh, it's going to be, it's got a 25 to 40-year uh, lifespan, um, and the company, uh, the, the LNG companies are putting in, you know, tens of millions of dollars to, uh, you know, to install, maintain, and to operate this system. Uh, and this all came out of the, the consultation you know, that the sanctuary had uh, with the licensing agency. So, you know, as we mentioned, the shifting of the, the, the shipping lanes uh, through the sanctuary, uh, where, which required a lot of cooperation and collaboration, uh, this is another example of what I, I think has been remarkable uh, coordination and collaboration. It is most remarkable. I mean, we hear about the court cases where industries are brought to court to, to pay, make amends, remediate, you know, damaging or striking whales or something. And this didn't require any of that. This was total 
voluntary involvement, it sounds like. Well, it's a, it's a little more than voluntary. There is a license agreement involved, um, and uh, we do, uh, in Mike, one of Mike's role is using AIS to ensure compliance with the LNG, that the LNG vessels are indeed slowing down you know, when they, the, a signal of a right whale is, is received. Um, but the, I think the, the, the good thing about this for the taxpayers is that this is this remarkable tool and capability that's now in place, and it didn't cost them anything. This is entirely uh, a cost uh, uh, that uh, has to be accepted by the, the LNG companies. Yes, that's a very important point. You can't say it, but I can tell people that you've been doing remarkable work with lessening of funds or, you know, insufficient funding, I think. And it's just remarkable that you're able to do so much. Um, oh, I had a question. I just forgot what it was. Well, okay. actually, we can just jump in. Yeah, with one jump other. in, please. <laughs> We're building on this capability, Rob. Um, again, the sanctuary has been working yes, with the University of yes. New Hampshire uh, with the Park Service down in Cape Cod, the National Seashore, um, we now are, are a prototype of that we can actually transmit these the notices of these right whale calls, um, you know, by VHF directly to the ships, so that they no longer have to go through the website. That's and great. This is a re re remarkable development that offers the opportunity of any ship now, not just the LNG vessels. But any ship out there that's using the, the, the shipping lane into Boston you know, can have this information uh, sent directly to them and be received at the helm, uh, and then they also can decide whether or not they want to slow down when they know that there's a high probability of a right whale in their path. Yeah, because that information is so meaningful, it's so valuable to have the knowledge. Uh, it's more, more likely to act responsibly with the knowledge. Do you find that there are going to be spin-off benefits that you have, that weren't the initial purpose that may be appearing? Well, I mean, this, this is one of the spin-off benefits. Right now, the the, uh, the notification of mariners is through the website, um, and under the license agreement, only they are required to, to slow down. Um, but in our discussions with, with Massport and the shippers, uh, they've often said that if you give us a high probability likelihood that there's a whale in our path, we will voluntarily slow down. So now what we have done is that we've built on the capability that was generated through the arrangement uh, with the LNG license agreement, partnering with the Park Service. We can now transmit this information to all vessels uh, that have uh, the, the proper receiver. The proper receiver is just on the purchase of, of, of a few thousand dollars, um, and then they can, if they're using the shipping lane, they can decide whether they want to slow down. So that what right now is required only of the LNG companies uh, can expand to the entire universe of shipping lane users um, to decide whether or not they want to voluntarily slow down. And because we have AIS, we can actually monitor whether or not there are other vessels slowing down. So that's a, that's a huge potential that's huge. game. Absolutely huge. You've mentioned the uh, LNG facility um, unloading pipes being built um, between sandwich between the sanctuary and state waters. Uh, when we come back, um, I was going to ask if uh, you're seeing more traffic as you know in general and as a result of that new facility. We'll be back after this break. Thank you for 
are listening to the Green Talk Network. Help to spread the green by involving your family and friends. You're doing your part. Now help them think green. Spread the green. The Green Talk Network. All together Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Have questions about wind power? Listen for the TLG Wind Power Hour with Terry from TLG Wind Power Products. He'll cover the ins and outs of wind energy with you, whether you're a do-it-yourselfer or want a ready-made product. Let Terry give you the know-how and understanding of making wind energy work for you. Terry will share decades of hands-on experience so that you don't have to learn about wind power the hard way. The TLG Wind Power Hour, live every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk Network. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. listening to the green talk network help to spread the green by involving your family and friends you're doing your part and now help them think green spread the green the green talk network You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. We're back with Superintendent Craig McDonald of Stellwagen Bank National Marine Sanctuary. We're talking about right whales and wrong shipping channels that are being changed, that have been made right. And, uh, Craig, uh, where can people go to learn more about this work of the sanctuary? I think the best place, Rob, is if they actually go to our website, which is Stellwagen, that's S-T-E-L-L-W-A-G-E-N, dot NOAA, N-O-A-A, dot gov. Thank you. Ben, uh, Ben Haskell-Cowley is with us here, uh, Assistant Superintendent. Uh, ben, uh, tell us about some close encounters on the seafloor in Stellwagen. 
Okay, Rob, um, I'm the uh, dive superintendent for the sanctuary, so I've been diving in the sanctuary for nine years um, and have had some, you know, pretty cool encounters with uh, with critters on the bottom in the sanctuary. And uh, one of them was uh, when we were diving on, on a shipwreck, um, and most of our dives are on shipwrecks, but the nice thing about shipwrecks is that they sort of uh, serve as oases of, of uh biological diversity on the seafloor, you know, things get attracted to the shipwreck and uh, grow on the wreck or hide in the wreck. So uh, one day we were diving on this, on this particular wreck, and, um, and I turn around and look over my, my dive buddy Matt Lawrence's shoulder, and there's this huge white mouth. I mean, you know, it's about mouth. two feet across or so, and I'm like, the first thing that crosses my mind is, oh, my God, that's a shark mouth. Um, but on closer inspection, it, it thankfully wasn't a shark mouth. <laughs> it was the mouth of a mola mola, which is an ocean sunfish. And you usually see them at the surface um, lying sort of horizontal, uh, essentially sunbathing. Um, and they're bizarre-looking fish. They can be huge, like six feet uh, wide. Um, the thing about ocean sunfishes is, is that they're sort of uh, as wide as they are long, so um, they're rather bizarre, and they eat jellyfish, of all things, uh, to stay alive. And, um, and there was this mola mola staring at me, and he was probably wondering what the heck we were doing there, just as much as I was wondering what he was doing there, because I've never seen them, you know, swimming down at uh, 80 feet uh, before, so And then he swims around us in this uh, spiral pattern, checking us out with his big eyes, uh, and then swims off in, into, the, uh, into the gloomy dark. Um, but uh, actually, you know, diving offshore in the sanctuary is really, really satisfying because um, the water quality is generally very good, and the water visibility is 30 feet usually or, or greater. Um, which is far greater than you find inshore. Um, generally, you know, you're lucky if it's uh, 10 or 15 feet inshore. Uh, so some days, you know, it's 40, 50 feet visibility, which is fantastic. And, um, and there's a lot to see offshore. And 15% well, no, of the sanctuary like... is, is um, within recreational diving limits. That's less than 130 feet. So um, there's a lot of ground to cover out there, um, and there are... Several charters around Massachusetts Bay that are willing to take people out to the sanctuary. Um, so, if folks are interested, you know it, it's a potential new, a whole new um, dive area to explore. Um, and it looks like there's just a gravel bank out there. Is it just all gravel when you go down, or no, not at all, Rob? Um, there are at least five different habitats in the sanctuary, such as um, you know gravel. Uh, sandy habitat. There's a more muddy. The deeper areas have have sort of a muddy habitat uh, because they're not disturbed by the storm waves that frequent uh, the sanctuary during the winter months. Um, and then there's a uh, boulder reef type habitat, which is our equivalent of the coral reef, <laughs> but um, but uh, sort of a far cry from the coral reef in terms of number of organisms. But still, the boulder reef habitat. Um, Again, attracts a lot of invertebrates that grow on the boulders, um, colorful, you know, anemones and uh, bryozoans 
and hydroids, and then um, hiding amongst the, the huge boulders that were dropped by the, um, the glacier, um, you know, 14,000 years ago are wolffish and uh, ocean pout and cusk, uh, cod, haddock, a whole variety of, uh, of fish life. And then, um, and then there's the last habitat is sort of a rocky outcrop, outcrop that you would find more, more to the north, uh, like off of Maine. But we have a small amount of it in the, uh, in the northeast corner of the sanctuary. Um, but, so not much. But one of the interesting things about Stellwagen is that you won't find um, sort of large, fleshy algae like kelp. Uh, that you might find inshore or up up in Maine. Um, so right, there's that. not a whole lot of, of uh, al- algae growing, uh, or at least large algae like seaweeds growing um, on the seafloor in, in the sanctuary. But the place is absolutely wonderful. It, it, every time you go out there, it's different. It's so dynamic, and uh, and if you're um, you know you're going to see things on the surface as well as on the bottom. You know, on the surface is you know, bluefin tuna and whales and seabirds sea galore. It's just absolutely amazing. The, where I'm interested in the wolffish. The uh, Ocean River Institute had a campaign to um, get the wolffish listed as an endangered species because I guess it's been overfished. And um, people can go to the Ocean River um, Institute's website, www.oceanriver.org, and under wolffish, they can click on a video that shows the wolffish coming out of its den and, and crunching on a sea urchin and then pulling back in again. Uh, it's gotten a lot of hits on that. Um, have you had any troubles with uh, putting your hands in the wrong places near wolffish? <laughs> I have not yet, Rob. All right, good. I wouldn't recommend cuddling up to them. Um, it's, it's a fabulous place out there, Stellwagen. Um, and you, you also find, uh, what do you find migrating through there as well as the inhabitants that you told us a bit about? Right. Um, well, in addition to the, the mola molas, ocean sunfish, and, of course, in addition to the whales, we have sharks that uh, migrate through, and the, uh, the giant bluefin tuna is, uh, is an annual visitor starting uh, around June and then um, heading out sometime in probably early December. Um, and these are magnificent creatures um, that grow up to 1,000-plus pounds. Those are the giants. And then um, there are a lot of the smaller uh, variety as well. Um, uh, I have yet to see a giant bluefin underwater, but uh, I'm waiting for that day. And um, a variety of sharks. Occasionally we get the great white coming through, um, and more commonly, we have the blue shark, um, a lot of um, uh, spiny dogfish, which are small three-foot-long sharks, and those are usually present on every dive, and they're uh, an absolute uh, beautifully beautiful to watch. Any mm. shark is just so graceful underwater. Um, and then, um, how about and then basking we have shark? The, uh, the basking shark that migrates through around this time of year. Um, the basking shark is one of the larger sharks. Uh, really, in the world, um, and believe it or not, it feeds on uh, microscopic plankton, um, and uh, so it just kind of cruises the ocean surface with its mouth wide open, um, filtering out these plankton. Um, and uh, Greg Skolmel with the Mass Dep- uh, Division of Marine Fisheries is an expert on basking sharks and is uh, has been tagging them for the last several years. 
We hope to take Greg out uh, the next couple of weeks to um, tag more basking sharks. Um, Is he learning anything from the tagging? Absolutely. Uh, amazing, amazing stuff. That These basking sharks, um, uh, later in the summer and fall, will head offshore into very, very deep waters, like over uh, 1,500 meters, um, uh, you know, way out off the continental shelf. They'll... They'll hit the deep waters, and I think they, they are actually riding the, um, the cold Labrador current south to off of South America, um, and then they do whatever they do off South America, whether it's uh, breeding or, or, or what. I'm, I, don't yeah. think, uh, I don't think Greg knows yet. At least he's finding out where they go and when they yeah. come back. And yeah, exactly. Fascinating. Robert, this is Craig. I just... Chime in a moment, too. Uh, one of the other uh, uh, tools that we use, in addition to, you know, Ben and his team diving, are remotely operated vehicles, which are, are essentially small tethered robots. Uh, and one of the areas that we're investigating, we're calling it the sponge forest, because it's an area which is, uh, in, in a lot of ways, it looks a bit like a Caribbean uh, reef, uh, not because of the corals, but, you know, those your listeners who have been in the Caribbean and knows a lot of sponges, um, you know, we, we found an area where there's sponges, you know, a foot or more or higher. Um, and in the winter when we, we, we went there, uh, there were no fish. Uh, well, we just did a, a mission a couple weeks ago, and uh, it's an area that's populated by a lot of cod. And what's really interesting is the way that the cod are using this habitat. Uh, when we see them on the ROV, they're very dark, but some of them have white blotches on them. So it's, mm. it's a lot like looking at groupers uh, next to sponges on a Caribbean reef. So there's, there's, we're still discovering this place. We're still amazed at the things that we're seeing uh, and the similarities with, with some other, you know, uh, other environments that we haven't anticipated here. Like what Ben said on diving in the shipwrecks, some of them are just so colorful with reds and oranges and, and, and whites and, and, and purples mixed in um, that, you know, you, you could almost think you're looking at a, at a, at a, a coral reef uh, but instead, you're looking at things called bryozoans and, and, and tunicates in addition to the sponges. Craig, that's phenomenal. We're out of time, but I want to thank you. And, it's, you know, we, do, we don't know much about the ocean, and Superintendent McDonald was just pointing out that we don't know much about Stellwagen Bank and that por- portions of the ocean. And that being uh, so close to an urban area, it's really important that we all work together to help save the ocean. Um, Craig, McDon- uh, Craig McDonald and Ben Cowie Haskell and Mike Thompson, thank you for being on the show. Thank you, thank Rob. You Thanks, Rob. We'll be back after this break. Are they still on? Mike is next. Okay. Hey, Mike. So it turns out that the other guys. for listening to the Green Talk Network. Help to spread the green by involving your family and friends. You're doing your part. Now help them think green. Spread the green. The Green Talk Network. All together now.
Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Experience higher love, an archangelic journey into ascended joy and authentic living. Your hosts, Sri Ram Ka and Kira Ra, will assist you to open your heart, expand your love, and be ever-present with true joy. Your journey with Sri and Kira begins right here on the 7th Wave Network with Higher Love, Wednesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. The Green Talk Network is here. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, Mike Dunmeyer of Ocean Champions is joining me by telephone from Washington. Hello, Mike. Hey, Rob. Good to be here. Mike, I understand um, that you like to call this segment the good, the bad, and the ugly. Now, I hope this is not a return of the blob of algal bloom that we discussed in past episodes. No, I think, uh, I think we can all breathe a little easier. There were no blob attacks today. Oh, good. <laughs> Tell us about the good. Well, uh, there are a few things, Rob, and, and uh, that's, that's obviously a, a great thing, so a lot of good news in the last week. Um, first, I just wanted to follow up on last week's discussion of the National Ocean Policy Task Force and fill everyone in on how the, uh, the first public meeting in Alaska went. I think overall went uh, went really well. First of all, several key members of the interagency policy task force uh, actually went to Alaska uh, Jane Lubchenco, the NOAA Administrator, Nancy Sutley, the Chair of the White House Council on Environmental Quality, David Hayes, the Deputy Secretary of the Interior, and uh, Admiral Thad Allen, who's the Coast Guard Commandant. Um, before the meeting, they, they toured a number of places in Alaska, including Nome, Barrow, Dead Horse, uh, Shishmaref, and Fairbanks, and uh, they came away reporting that they could not argue with what they saw, which was evidence of melting sea ice, erosion on the coast, and uh, that they got testimony from locals about those issues and those locals that knew the area best. Um, at the public meeting itself, stated that they expected to have a list of the priorities for improving ocean stewardship in place by mid-September. 
that means that they really are trying to hold themselves to, to the schedule that was put forth by President Obama in the, uh, in the presidential memorandum. And then by December, they plan to have uh, set out the broad strategy for sustainably allocating uh, the ocean's natural resources among all the different interests, including fishing, oil and gas development, shipping, uh, clean energy like wind and tidal, uh, as well as boating and, and, and even as we would care about wildlife preservation. Um, the meeting itself, there were apparently about 400 people that attended, and 60 of them spoke, which was great. Uh, there was also a nine-member panel of prominent Alaskans who gave speeches on a number of topics ranging from the health of Alaska native coastal communities to the need for new ship escort vessels. Uh, there were a lot of strong statements from environmentalists who argued for preservation-minded management of, uh, of these stressed ocean resources, there are also statements from industry groups that argued for more exploitation. So um, bottom line is this underscores how important it's going to be for the ocean community to continue to attend and speak up at these events. Um, all in, though, it appears that this event is well for environmental interests, and we just need to keep up the momentum. Uh, as new dates for public meetings are confirmed, we will post them on the Ocean Champions website, and we'll send out information uh, through various channels like Twitter and... and uh, Good. How about the expanded commercial fishing? What, what's with that? So great news there. Um, the Obama administration approved a management plan for Arctic fisheries that prevents the expansion of commercial fishing uh, into this area. It's about 150 square, 150,000 square nautical miles, which is bigger than California. Um, and this winds up barring uh, industrial fishing in U.S. waters north of the Bering Strait, which includes the Chukchi and Beaufort Seas. Um, the plan was originally crafted by the Regional Fishery Management Council in Alaska, and it's backed by Alaska's largest uh, commercial fishing group. So all the interests are aligned here. Uh, this is really significant because it's the first time that an administration has taken steps to protect an area like this before major commercial fishing begins. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a move that positions us well to begin negotiations with Russia and Canada to get them to do similar things and prevent a rush uh, to new fishing grounds that could really cause the fish populations there to crash. Yes. Excellent. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Um, that's, that's really excellent. Uh, what about the bad? Well, we actually one more good, and that is that uh, NOAA, uh, Jane Lobchenko, has invited the public to provide commentary on their strategic plan. Uh, you'll find the, the link to that on the website. Great opportunity for people to jump in and provide some guidance on the areas that are priorities to them. Uh, so in terms of the bad, then, uh, we had a couple items around offshore drilling, uh, unfortunately. First of all, in Australia, uh, a not-yet-online well had a blowout uh, that was more than two miles deep, and it's likely to pour oil into the Timor Sea for two months before it can be stopped. It's going to take that long to get equipment in place uh, to be able to drill a relief well and, and pour mud to stop it. Uh, uh, you know, so, so two months of pumping oil into the sea, not really a great thing. And this area is, is uh, seen as being very significant to migrating mammals. It's kind of an ocean superhighway. And uh, the woman who is the head of WWF's uh, Australia Conservation Group said that from a global scale, this is one of the most important places on the planet for ocean wildlife. So It's the Timor Sea. So it's indeed. just to the east of the um, Great Banks, the Great Barrier Reef. I'm not sure exactly where it lines up relative uh, to the real west, I guess, uh, yeah. 
but yeah. Uh, but yeah, very significant. And uh, you know, again, this is just one of those items that anytime somebody wants to argue that it is safe and and uh, and easy to drill offshore, you know, we should remind them of things like this. Uh, and then, in a somewhat related story, in South Carolina, a feasibility study, a uh, uh, feasibility committee. Uh, has recommended that uh, the state be included as one of the states in a five-year plan to open up exploratory natural gas drilling. Um, now, the plan is for drilling for natural gas, but you know, pretty much everyone knows that energy companies also tend to drill for oil where they drill for natural gas, uh, and this study is recommending that, that they go down that path. Uh, what was neat is that they said that uh, they should do it if it would produce significant revenue and they could mitigate potential harm to tourism and the environment and oh, then, as an afterthought, the committee recommended that the state should draw up a, a comprehensive energy plan. So it's nice to see that they recommend harvesting a resource before they've determined whether they actually need to do so. Um, and what you're seeing in Australia right now, again, underscores how it really is not exactly risk-free to do this. Um, this would be off the coast of South Carolina, you're talking Right, yeah. right. And it, it doesn't mean that drilling is going to happen. Uh, there are a lot, this is just a recommendation, and there are a lot of steps to the process. Um, ironically, one of the reasons that it may not come to pass is that the region is generally thought not to have much potential for oil production, and geologists are saying that the rock formations there wouldn't hold natural gas in economically viable concentrations anyhow. So it seems to be somewhat of a, of a bit of a greedy move um, that may not come to pass, but just a bad sign overall. Yes. Uh, and then in terms of algal blooms, we had a few more uh, blooms reported, uh, one off of Maine, Another one in California's world-famous Half Moon Bay area. Uh, and then, you know, just to show that this is such an international problem, we've seen big blooms reported in Australia, England, Scotland, France, and Vietnam. Uh, so, again, when Congress comes back in session, we'll be talking more about that harmful algal blooms bill, uh, which we think is really important because this is a growing and serious problem. Well, that's the time we have. I was hoping to hear about your surfing. Um. <laughs> That was the ugly, my surfing of Hurricane Bill, which, uh, you know, me and 500 of my closest friends along some beach breaks in Delaware uh, had a great time, but, but got dropped on my head a few times while I was shaking the rust. But uh, all in, uh, it was a heck of a lot of fun to get out there. Well, I'm glad you're out there. Keep up the good, keep your eyes open for us and keep up the good reports. Indeed. Thanks so much, Rob. Thank you, Mike. We'll see you next time. Ocean River Institute, uh, the Ocean River Shields of Achilles. Bye-bye. again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Talk Network. We'll talk again then.